0: My name is Philip Carlson. I'm Chief Economist of Boston Consulting Group, and you're listening to the BCG Henderson Institute podcast series. Today, I'm welcoming Mark Levinson to review his new book, Outside the Box, a detailed account of the successive phases of globalization and the impending phase that he calls the fourth globalization. Mark, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Mark, you described the world as having gone through three distinct phases of globalization already and being on the cusp of a fourth one. Can you start by giving a brief synopsis of the four phases?
1: Sure. As everybody knows, international trade has been around forever. That's not particularly a, a new thing, but that's not really globalization. Up until about the 1830s, most people in most countries really weren't much affected by the world economy. It was the development of the steamship and the telegraph in the 1830s and 1840s that opened the way to what I call the first globalization, which saw a huge increase in international trade and also in international investment, as particularly European investors put a lot of money into U.S. steel industry and Argentine railroads and so forth. So the world was quite globalized up until the start of World War I. Then globalization took a step back. It really atrophied for the next 30 years due to two world wars and a depression. After World War II, we had the growth of the international institutions, including the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which opened the way to lower tariffs all around the world, reducing trade barriers and thereby stimulating more trade. And we had a big increase in international trade uh, during that period. Uh, Manufactured goods trade became more important than commodities trade for the first time ever. That sort of ran out in the 1970s as the world economy slowed and tariff reductions became harder to come by. In the 1980s, we went into a, a new third phase I refer to as third globalization. This was the age of container shipping, cheap telecommunications and cheap computing, which really made it possible to run a global value chain. So this was the era in which we started to see a lot of manufacturing shift to low wage countries in Asia, in Latin America. Saw companies developing long distance sourcing strategies designed to minimize the cost of making and transporting goods. I argue that this phase has exhausted itself and we're now moving into a fourth phase of globalization when it's really going to be services rather than stuff that's at the heart of global value chains.
0: Let's talk about the inequality that is often associated with globalization. I think you stress repeatedly that the third globalization lifted billions out of poverty but you also acknowledge the reality of rising inequality within countries. So both are true. Let me ask you this perhaps provocative question. So if globalization lifts billions out of poverty, but also raises inequality, who is to say that the net benefit of the third phase of globalization wasn't positive or not good enough?
1: Certainly, we have had Many, many people who were made better off by the third phase of globalization. I don't think there's any dispute about that. Uh, I think it's also indisputable that we've had large numbers of people and many communities that were made worse off. And the reality is that economic adaptation takes time. You know, economists like to say, sometimes rather glibly, they'll find something else to do. And that happens, okay? They will find something else to do. But I think historically, we can see that when you have these major sorts of transitions and a community loses its economic base, it can take 30 or 40 years for it to find something else to do. I just point you to New York, of all places, which lost its manufacturing base in the 1960s and 1970s and was in many ways, a depressed place well into the 1990s. People forget that already. Uh, you know, Brooklyn wasn't cool. Brooklyn was depressed. Okay? And yes, it found something else to do, right? It found a different kind of economic base and it's prospering now, but it, it wasn't easy. You don't simply say, here's another job, go do it. So I think we tend to underestimate the difficulty for individuals and uh, for their communities in making this sort of transition.
0: Well, let me stay on the topic of inequality for one moment. Do you think that the fourth phase of globalization will alleviate some of the outsourcing pain that drove inequality in rich countries? Or do you think that the fourth globalization will simply repeat in the services industry what it's done in the physical economy, so you know now that we've outsourced blue collar jobs, white collar jobs are next, the coders, the engineers, the accountants and, and all the office workers in between which which direction is it, do you think? Uh,
1: I think we're going to uh, see a greater risk that many kind of white collar jobs uh, can be outsourced. I think if you, you look at the economy, certainly. There are jobs that require face-to-face contact, and by and large, those haven't been outsourced. But all kinds of jobs that people don't necessarily think of can now be done in other countries where wages are lower. Artificial intelligence makes this all the more practical by reducing language as a barrier here, so people can be told by a computer what to say in a different language or what something means. And so already, I think we're starting to see uh, tasks like financial analysis, some parts of journalistic reporting, radiology, all kinds of different things moving abroad in fits and starts. And so that is going to have some ramifications, I think, for many workers in the United States who were rather sheltered from the first globalization.
0: But then the key ailment of the last phase of globalization is going to at least stay with us, if not accelerate and get worse.
1: I think that this risk of displacement um, certainly remains. I think what we've seen is that, in general, white collar workers tend to have somewhat higher levels of education and may have an easier time adapting to new kinds of employment. Also, if they work on computers, which most of them do, their location may not be such a disadvantage. Whereas for somebody, somebody who's in, in manufacturing, for example, you're working where your factory is, your factory closes, there's no other job in town. So I think the adaptation may be a little bit easier, but I think many white collar workers are not accustomed to thinking about competition in this way. And it's going to be quite a change. They're going to face wage pressure. They're going to face risk of outsourcing. Not so much in the sense of closing a huge office, but tasks will migrate. So now you've got people who work in this consultancy. They do these kinds of jobs. And now certain of those jobs are going to be sent off to the office in Mumbai. Does anybody get laid off? Immediately? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Is there a mass layoff? Probably not. Is there a gradual migration of work? Potentially. And it's going to be very hard to keep track of. It's going to be very hard to know how wages in Europe or Japan or the United States are affected by wages in India or Malaysia. Uh, So it's going to be a different sort of environment that we're not very well set up to understand.
0: Let's talk a bit about inflation, and I know you don't cover the topic explicitly in the book, but I'll say from a macro perspective, one of the biggest benefits of the last 30 years, what you call the third phase of globalization, is the fact that cheap stuff has helped to keep inflation low, anchor the inflation regime, and it has thereby helped consumers, policymakers, and it certainly has also helped asset valuations. So I think at the firm level, you repeatedly refer to the China price, where cutting costs had become virtually the only optimization function for firms, and China was the benchmark. So I wonder in the fourth globalization, if we're moving from shipping stuff around the world to spreading ideas, to paraphrase the subtitle of your book, is that benefit of the last phase, the disinflationary impulse of physical trade, is that staying with us? Is it diminishing? Is it going away? How do you view that big benefit to economies of the last phase? I think that that impulse is diminished uh, for a
1: couple of reasons. One is that uh, we're already seeing that physical goods just matter less. And this is an effect, a statistical effect of exactly what you're talking about, that the prices of physical goods in many cases have been falling. The prices of services have generally not been falling. And it should come as no shock that services account for a greater proportion of consumer spending, a greater proportion of business spending even, and a greater proportion of international trade. So even if goods prices were to continue to fall, you would expect them to have a less significant effect on inflation overall. I think the question then is whether we should expect to see the same deflation in services prices that we've seen in goods prices due to international trade. Mm-hmm. Um, my response there, I, I don't really have a very good answer for that, except to say that you know, we have a heck of a time trying to calculate inflation in service prices now. We don't right. do it very well. And so I'm not sure we're going to be doing it any better uh, mm-hmm. as we have more and more internationally traded services. Uh, the question of price here is, very tightly linked to the question of quality, and we don't really have a great way of evaluating that. And so I would not expect that we would see a great disinflationary effect or deflationary effect, uh, except to the extent that this movement of work and services is reflected in wages in um, high-income countries.
0: Well, let's talk about firms a little more. So the China price rationale that you described captures the fact that the only optimization for firms was cost for a long while. That led to very fragmented or very long global value chains. And I think you describe at some length the risks that came with it. Supplier risks, physical disruptions, regulatory risks, natural disasters. So the whole construct is quite vulnerable and COVID has, has demonstrated that quite powerfully. Now, A shift to defragmentation, shorter, more concentrated value chains was already underway. COVID plausibly, you know, accelerates it. Will the fourth globalization be going back to longer value chains, you think? Because if the next phase is about ideas, services, intellectual property, some of the risks of the last phase no longer apply. So, for example, you know, the risk of physical disruption it will be much easier to shift coders, engineers, or researchers than it was to shift a factory floor. So how do you view that trade-off of resilience and efficiency? And are we going back to maybe longer value chains because the services nature allows it?
1: Well, with respect to goods trade, I think that we've seen that many firms have started to calculate the cost of redundancy into their decision-making, which for many years they didn't do. And this is tied in in some cases to regionalization. Uh, In some cases, not. There are firms that have chosen to keep very long value chains, but still have multiple suppliers at each phase, uh, have multiple ship routes at each phase, use different ports to get their goods delivered to each country they're headed to. So, take a number of measures to make their supply chains more resilient in the face of risk. I think that the Risk issues are somewhat easier to deal with in services simply because you've got already a a very fluid system for moving uh, services around the world. So, what you've got people doing in Bangalore uh, is now being backed up in Frankfurt. And if necessary, you can replicate it, you may be able to recreate it. And so, I think we see less likelihood of long-term disruptions there. I think there is still uh, some risk that comes from the government side that businesses are are going to have to deal with. These risks, though, don't particularly emerge quickly. I'm talking about things like data storage requirements, uh, new auditing requirements that have to do with privacy, those sorts of things. These are typically debated significantly before they're put into place and so businesses have some time to plan their adaptation and figure out how they're going to deal with these to to mitigate the risk.
0: Let's also look at the notion of decoupling between China and the US, which is a different theme but it's intertwined with the notion of a fourth phase of globalization. Do you think that the US and China drifting further apart in all kinds of dimensions will be an impediment to that next phase, or do you think it could be neutral or even be a silver lining? How do you think about that intersection?
1: There's an interesting discussion going on now involving a very small number of companies where we're talking about setting up barriers to a a Chinese video app in the United States, right? right? Or China does not allow certain kinds of websites to operate in China. These barriers to this point affect a very small number of companies and in a very tiny piece of the economy. Much as people are fond of using Google, Google is not really the U.S. economy. Google is one company which is a tiny share of the U.S. economy. So I think these things can be kind of ripped out of proportion. I'm not aware of anyone to this point who has said that we should put measures in place so that... A US-based architecture firm cannot employ Pakistani drafters to improve its designs. That's a much more typical form of globalization that's going on across a whole range of industries today. And so far, there are really very few uh, impediments to that. I'm not sure that governments are going to really block this. It's a question of whether firms themselves choose to do this, again, from the context of of risk minimization. Uh, If you believe that a certain government is going to take advantage of the fact that you perform a service in their country to steal your patents, to steal your ideas, you will move that work someplace else. And firms have considerable flexibility to do that. So I think... Decoupling, in that sense, is likely to occur much more on a case-by-case basis as businesses make their own judgments about what is safe and profitable for them.
0: Last question, Mark. Given all the changes that look likely in the next phase of globalization, what do you think are the imperatives for business leaders today? How can they prepare for the themes that you sketch?
1: First off, I think that we still have a lot of business leaders who haven't taken this issue of risk mitigation very seriously. It's come to the fore again with COVID-19. We've had some businesses that have been thinking very seriously about value chain risk for a number of years. We have many that still don't. And it's easy to enumerate the sorts of risks that businesses need to consider. I think what we've seen repeatedly is that the short-term cost of mitigating these risks makes it unattractive to do that. And so businesses continue to take these risks and hope it will all work out at least until the next CEO comes on the scene. So I think that that's really a big issue. I think that globalization, as I've written, is really moving away from this focus on manufactured goods and in the future going to concern services much more. Again, we've seen a number of major corporations that have already caught on to this and now think of services as an intrinsic part of what they manufacture or what they sell. This rather artificial decoupling of services and manufacturing is going away for a number of companies. And I really think that is going to continue. Many companies are not there yet, but I think that the money is going out of the business of simply making stuff and you need to have another way to handle this. I think that the growth of international trade and services is going to put a lot of pressure on businesses that until now really haven't felt it very much. All of us have been enjoying COVID-19 while watching Netflix and Hulu. Well, if you're a content producer in a high cost country this isn't such great stuff because we've been able to see a lot of content from a lot of other countries. Mm -hmm. And you may never have thought that you really had competition in the business of making video content, but it's pretty clearly there. And the same applies in many other industries. So I think people need to look out for competition from new places.
0: Well, thank you, Mark, for joining me today to talk about your new book, Outside the Box. Thank you.
1: I really appreciate you inviting
0: me to be on this.